If you please turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We're in chapter 17 this morning. That's found on page 580 in the Pew Bible, Isaiah 17. And if you remember, when we started this, this section, after we got past the, the introduction of Isaiah in chapter 7, do you remember there was a major concern on the king of Judah, King Ahaz? And do you remember what that major concern was? It was this alliance, this unholy alliance between Israel, which was the, the northern kingdom of God's people, and the pagan nation of Syria. And this alliance had its, set sight on, its sights set on conquering Judah. They had besieged Jerusalem, and this had Ahaz terrified. And God, through his prophet Isaiah, he provides comfort. He, he, he had promised that Jerusalem would not fall, that God himself would defend the city. And, and sadly, King Ahaz refused to trust God. And God even offered to give Ahaz a sign. And he said a sign of his choosing, any sign he wanted to increase the king's weak faith. But, but Ahaz would not even ask for a sign. See, Ahaz already had decided what he would do in response to this threat. And Ahaz's response is that he himself would enter an unholy alliance with the Assyrians. And the Assyrians turned out to be a much greater threat and a much greater problem, not only to Judah, but to the surrounding nations, as we're seeing in this section of, of judgment against Isaiah, because Assyria is the, the instrument that God is using to judge all these nations. And if you've ever read through Isaiah or not familiar with biblical history, you may be wondering, well, whatever happened to Israel and Syria? Well, we get the answer in today's reading. In chapter 17, we see God's judgment on Syria, and it's spoken of as Damascus. Damascus was the capital city of Syria, which is, again, even today, the nation Syria, Damascus is the capital. And we also see the judgment on Israel, spoken of here as Ephraim. Ephraim was the largest tribe in the northern kingdom. So Isaiah chapter 17, hear now the word of the Lord. An oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The city of Aurora are deserted. They will be for flocks, which will lie down, and none will make them afraid. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim, and the kingdom from Damascus. And the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. And in that day the glory of Jacob will be brought low, and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. And it shall be as when the reaper gathers standing grain, and his arm harvests the ears. And as when one gleans the ears of grain in the valleys of Rephraim, gleanings will be left in it. As when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries in the top of the highest bough, four or five on the branches of a fruit tree, declares the Lord God of Israel. In that day, man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the works of his hands, and he will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. In that day, their strong cities will be like a deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation, and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away 
in a day of grief and incurable pain. Ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations. They roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters. But he will rebuke them. And they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. At evening time, behold, terror. Before morning, they are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word. And Lord, we pray for your spirit to be with us. I pray, Lord, that you will anoint my words. Father, I pray that we will hear from you. Uh, Lord, that we will be challenged by your word. And Father, that we will not react in, in discouragement or despair, but Father, we will look to you. We will see the hope. We will see your grace in this passage. And Father, we will cling to that. We will forsake any idols that tempt us, and we will cling only to the living God through his word. And we pray this in the name of and for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, during seminary, I had several pastoral counseling classes. And the Charlotte campus actually offered a degree in, in uh, biblical counseling. So many of these classes overlapped with the, with the Master of Divinity program, which I was in. And so we had a very good selection of counseling classes. And one of my favorite counseling classes was a class where we actually looked at modern secular counseling methods. And we evaluated these uh, methods from a biblical perspective. And surprisingly, many of these methods actually did have a, a biblical basis. And, and this does make sense, doesn't it? Because all truth is God's truth. Uh, this is God's world, which means when we are in alignment with God's word, these methods are going to be effective. They are going to work. But the biggest difference that I found between these secular methods and, and biblical wisdom and it's a difference in many cases really negates any eternal value that can be derived from these methods. And this difference is the overall goal. The overall goal was different. In secular methods, the goal is human flourishing. The goal is the removal of all problems, whether they're anxiety or depression or, or negative thoughts or, or destructive habits. <clears throat> and this is certainly not a bad goal by any means. Uh, often, not always, but often a life that's lived in alignment with God's word and God's principles will remove many of these problems and produce human flourishing. However, human flourishing is not God's primary goal. See, God is more concerned with our holiness than he is with our happiness. God is more concerned with our eternal flourishing than our temporal flourishing. Temporary suffering is often used by God to bring us, is often needed to bring us to that eternal joy that we want. And God often uses pain, physical pain, emotional pain, economic pain, social pain. He uses to get our attention. He uses to alert us that we're straying from his word, that we're straying from his will. And these secular methods that we study, they, they highlight a danger, I think, that we often fall into. See, we want God's benefits without wanting God. And we make an idol out of those good things that God gives, these blessings. There are good things that God gives us. A, a good marriage, a good family, health, those are all good things. And these are blessings from God. But what we do is we make an idol out of them. 
And we fail to see that these blessings are really of only any eternal value when they are obtained and when they are enjoyed in accordance with God's word. If we make them an end to themselves, they will not only destroy themselves, they will destroy us. See, they no longer provide any benefit when they're sought for their own sake, if we're seeking them apart from seeking God himself. And even a greater danger is when we seek to get these blessings apart from God, when we seek to get these blessings by our own efforts. See, instead of trusting God and trusting his means, we think that we somehow have to help God out. And this was the case both with Israel and Judah during this time that we're looking at in the book of Isaiah. See, both Israel and Judah were seeking security for the nation. This is a good thing. However, instead of looking for God, looking to God for it, instead of understanding that they have a special relationship with the God of the universe, what they did is they sought to find their security in their own cunning, in their own unholy alliances that they made with the pagan powers. They were looking to them. And ironically, ironically, it was their unfaithfulness that led to their downfall. See, by taking matters into their own hands and and failing to trust God, failing to trust his promises, they actually brought about the very thing they were trying to prevent. And they didn't think they were being unfaithful. That's a really stunning thing. We look at it, we think, couldn't they have seen it? No, they didn't see it. They didn't think they were being unfaithful. They thought they were being clever. They thought they were taking initiative. They thought they were helping God out. Right? They, they, They would... They would quote Benjamin Franklin, God helps those who help themselves. That's what they would say. And they would also claim, if you you could ask them, that they were worshiping the true God. They said, yeah, of course we worship Yahweh. Now what they did is they adopted the pagan ways of worship. They worshiped on the high places. They had Asherah poles. They They had idols and altars. And they directed their worship, but they thought they were directing their worship to Yahweh. At least in their minds, it was to Yahweh, not to these false gods of their neighbors. But they didn't realize, they didn't realize attempting to worship the true God in any other way than the way he prescribes in his word, and especially worshiping him the way pagans worship, that this is idolatry. It's every bit as idolatrous as worshiping these false gods directly. You can't worship God the world's ways. And what we see is many parallels here, many parallels between Judah and Israel and the modern church. We often make, in the church, unholy alliances with the anti-God culture. And we do this in an attempt to help gods out. We have, we have good motives, but what we do is we, we, we basically seek, we, we, we plant our feet in two worlds. One in the world and one in the church. And we align ourselves both with, with God and with those who oppose God. And we seek to worship the Lord, not according to the way that he's ordained in his word, but according to ways that appeal to us as fallen creatures and appeal to this fallen world. And this chapter has as much to say about the 21st century church as it did about Israel and Judah. So let's just jump in. Let's take a look at this passage. The first thing we need to recognize is who this passage is addressed to. It starts off as an oracle concerning Damascus. Damascus is the, the capital city of Syria. They are... They are pagans, and it's a judgment against Syria. Verses 1 and 2 speak about the destruction of Damascus. Verse 1 says that Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. And that's, in fact, what happened when Damascus was was invaded by the Assyrians around 732 B.C. 
And verse 2 speaks of other Syrian cities that will be deserted. It says that fox will, will lie down in these cities and not be afraid. And what this, what this means is they're not going to be afraid is because these cities are deserted. This is a poetic way of basically saying all the people in these cities will either flee or they will be killed. In these verses, we see judgment on Syria. But verse 3, verse 3 gives us an important twist here. In verse 3, we say the same judgment that's applied to Syria is also applied to Israel. It says the fortress will disappear from Ephraim. See, Ephraim, as we have discussed, this is another name for the northern kingdom of Israel. These were God's people. They were apostate. They had abandoned God's command by, to remain separate. They had made these unholy alliances with their pagan neighbors, but they still considered themselves God's people. They would have still considered themselves worshipers of Yahweh. <clears throat> but that's the way God considers them. God considers them pagans. God has lumped them in with Syria. God considers them by their attitudes and by their actions. God considers them indistinguishable from the Syrians, indistinguishable from pagans. See, by rejecting God's command to remain distinct, to remain separate from those who do not know him, and by making this unholy alliance, basically they have rejected God. And he treats them as unbelievers, and they get the same fate as the unbelievers. In verses 10 and 11, we see a specific sin of Israel. Verse 10 says, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation, and you have not remembered the rock of your refuge. See, this is the essence of their sin. They'd forgotten God. They no longer saw God as their safety. They no longer saw God as their security. They no longer saw God as their identity. See, they wanted to be like everyone else. They wanted to be like all those nations around them. They wanted to worship like the nations around them. And this is not something new. This should sound awfully familiar. Remember when the people rejected Samuel, the judge and prophet that God had put over the people? And they said, we don't want to worship. We don't want a, a judge. We want a king. We want to be like everyone else. See, their king was God. And God tells Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They are rejecting me. So God gives them what they wanted or what they thought they wanted. And who did they select for the king? They found someone who looked the part. They found the tallest, the handsomest, the most powerful looking man in Saul. And they put him as their king. But he was only the part externally. Internally, he did not know God. Internally, he was a disaster. Internally, he led the people away from God. And it's the same thing we see here. Look at the remainder of verse 10 and verse 11. It says, Therefore, you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger. See, the vine branch of a stranger is basically they're following the ways of the pagans. And what they've done is they adopted the religious rituals. So these were religious rituals that the pagans would do uh, to basically ensure an abundant harvest. See, this was seen in the a reference to the Canaanite fertility ritual. So what they would do is they would take these potted plants, they'd bring them into their house, and they would, they would nurse, they'd get them to grow. And this was to encourage the gods to allow the harvest to grow, and they give them fertile crops. But in verse 11, we see, Though you make them grow on the day that you plant them, and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. See, basically, Isaiah is saying, you're working with the world's ways. It's not going to work. You're following their ways. It's not going to work. It's futile. God will not be mocked. Now, we look at this and we say, isn't that foolish? That's superstition. 
And, and, and we're, we're quick to, to scoff at this foolishness and this, this primitive superstition. But do we not do the same thing? Do we not look to the methods and practices of the world while ignoring God's ordained means to bring spiritual blessing in the church? And, and, and we do this not because we want to, we, we do this for God. We do this for his kingdom. We think we're helping God out. But God has ordained his word. God has ordained the preaching of his word. Uh, he's ordained prayer. He's ordained this is the, the means of building his kingdom. And the Holy Spirit takes the word, the word preached, the gospel proclaimed, and he uses this. He uses the means in which he imparts new life to a sinner. And the Holy Spirit uses the foolishness of what I am doing now, the foolishness of preaching, the foolishness of proclaiming the gospel. And he uses this to regenerate the sinner, to make them a new creation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But as a church... We fail to trust God's ordained means. We feel that we, we have to help God out. You know, that might have worked a long time ago, but now we're more sophisticated. Now we need to, to use different means. I mean, preaching is boring. Just listening to someone speak for 40 minutes, there's, there's, there's much more engaging ways. You know, maybe use, use uh, uh, videos or skits or arts to keep people engaged. We, we, we need to help God out. That, that, that won't work. And then the gospel the gospel message, that is, is way too offensive. Telling people that by nature they're lost, telling people that they will head to hell unless they accept Jesus, this is going to offend people. This is going to hurt people's feelings. It will make them not like us. It will make them not want to follow Jesus. So what do we do? We employ the world's methods. We adopt the sales and the marketing approaches of the world. See, we treat God as just another commodity. He might as well be a bag of potato chips or a car or, or a cell phone. We're just selling God. We're using the same methods. And then we have these, these seeker-sensitive churches, which are, which are really a misnomer because there's really only one seeker, and that's the Holy Spirit. See, unbelievers, we want nothing by nature. As unbelievers, we want nothing to do with God. We're not seeking him. No one's seeking him. But what we do seek is we seek the benefits of God. And what the church does is we seek to sell those benefits of God. Right? How our relationship with God will, will make us happy, will make us healthy, will make us wealthy, will make us popular, will make us wise. How we can have our best life now. But we never mention God's judgment, right? Because that people don't want to hear. We never mention his wrath against sin. We never mention the need to repent the need to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation. We never mention that this is our only hope. We sell God as something that we can add. You're, you're okay now, but you can be a little bit better. If you just add God to your already full life, you can just be a little happier, a little more successful. Not that he is our only hope. And worse still, many churches present God as, as this weak and pathetic fairy godfather Desperately, he, he wants to bless us, but he can't. He has to wait for us to summon him. And to, the decision is all up to us. And what we need to do is, is just say a prayer. And we don't even have to say a prayer. Just repeat after someone else saying the prayer. And just say amen at the prayer and mean it in your heart. Whatever that means. Just invite Jesus into your heart. And then you can have all these blessings. And many churches have unknowingly made an, an unholy alliance with the world. See, we have a, a capitalism approach to God. 
See, the people in the pews, they are seen as a consumer. And in capitalism, the consumer is king. You do whatever is needed to reach them. You give them whatever they want. My friends, you are not the king. You are not the king. I answer to you, the king. And my, I'm going to be held accountable if I'm telling you the truth. Not whether you like me. It doesn't matter. I, I want you to like me. I would like you to like me. But if you don't like me, it doesn't really matter. I answer to the king. I have to be faithful to him. But what we do is we want to be liked. We want, we, we want to please the customer. So we do market research. We see what the people want. And then we craft this, this custom God that will appeal to our focus groups. And that's the way we grow big churches. That's the way we help God out. You know what God calls that? Idolatry. That's idolatry. Is that what we see in Scripture? Let's look at, the, the, of those born of women, there's none greater than John. John the Baptist. How did John the Baptist preach? Did he preach like this? Matthew 3, we read, But John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to, him, coming to his baptism. And he said, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as a father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Is this seeker sensitive? Right? John may have been the greatest born of women, but he doesn't know anything about salesmanship. You don't insult your, your customers. You don't call them a brood of vipers. Did he know that you get more flies with honey than vinegar? And this is not just John the Baptist. You could say, well, maybe he was grumpy. But there are others too, Peter, John, Stephen, all the apostles. They all call people to repentance. Even meek and mild Jesus. Listen to these words of meek and mild Jesus. Do not think that I come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those in his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, Jesus sounds pretty harsh, doesn't he? Doesn't he know that, that, that these words will make people feel uncomfortable? That these words are going to hurt people's feelings? We would much rather have a Jesus who's, who's a nice addition to our lives and doesn't, doesn't demand that he is first, that he is preeminent in all things. And we certainly don't want Jesus to come before our relationship, especially before our relationship with our children. No, our children must come first. Our children must have everything they want. They must be happy. And we see this. Here's a great example. This is one I myself am guilty of. We look at travel sports that go play on Sunday where our children cannot go to church. And we say, well, of course, God would be okay with it. He doesn't want me to, to jeopardize my child's chance of getting a college scholarship. And today's church would never tell a parent, no one told me when I did it, that it's sinful. It's disobedient to God to have your children regularly miss worship in order to play a game, even if they think they're going to get a scholarship out of it. And why don't we do it? Because it will offend parents. They'll stop coming to church the few times that they do come to church. See, the customer's king. And we must tell them only what they want to hear. What we've done is we've made an unholy alliance with the world. And the reason we do this is because we don't trust God. We don't trust his revealed way. We think that his ways won't work, and we must help him out. Did Jesus instruct 
his church to be so timid and fearful of rejection uh, to the point where, where they should say whatever is necessary, say whatever is necessary to keep them in the seats. Here Jesus' instruction to his disciples from Matthew 10. He says, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, does he say change your message? Does he, does he say promise them, give, give them entertainment? He says, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. He says, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Sodom and Gomorrah, that were destroyed by God from fire from heaven. It will be more bearable for them. See, my friends, God has entrusted us. God has entrusted the church with the only hope, the only hope for the human race. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. There is no other place. And regeneration only comes through his Holy Spirit. And we dare not tamper with his message. We dare not tamper with God's divine means of delivering this message. And that is through the word preached and the gospel proclaimed. We're not smarter than God. Jesus is not that impotent, pathetic, fairy godfather, helplessly waiting for rebellious and, and blasphemous sinners to condescend and say, well, well, maybe I'll invite him into my heart. No. Jesus is the sovereign, almighty king of the universe. He is the one to whom every single creature owes its very existence, owes absolute allegiance. That's what we owe to him. He's not tame. He's not safe. But he is good. And this fact should simultaneously terrify us and fill us with unspeakable joy. See, we don't casually and, and smugly invite him into our hearts like it's all up to us. No, what we do is we fall at his feet and we beg him for mercy. We're like the penitent tax collector. We refuse to even lift our eyes, but we, we beat our breasts and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we beg the Lord, we beg him to give us saving faith. Because we cannot on our own. We cannot on our own accept him. He is the one who must take the initiative, not us. He must supernaturally change our hearts and give us that saving faith. Otherwise, we won't have nothing to do with him. See, God does not need our help. And our unholy alliances do not please him. So what is the result of this idolatry? What is the result of these unholy alliances? What is the result of, of our seeking to help God out? Well, it's the same for Israel, it's the same for Judah, and it's the same for the church. And the result is, of, of these alliances is judgment. And as we see in this Isaiah passage, it's the same judgment. It's the same judgment that is given to the unbeliever. It's the same judgment because it comes from the same heart. Whether it's God's covenant people or the pagans, they both have a heart of disbelief. And we see this judgment described in verses 4 through 6. It says, and in that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low, and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. And it shall be as when the reapers gather standing grain, and his arm harvests the ears. And as when one gleans the ears of grain in the valley of Rephraim, gleanings will be left in it, as when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries in the top of the highest bough, four or five on the branches of the fruit tree, declares the Lord God of Israel. And what these verses describe is, is the Lord bringing his people down. When it says the fat of the flesh will grow lean. See, unlike today, being fat was actually seen as being healthy. It was, it was seen as being strong and being blessed. During this time, starvation was a norm. Obesity was, was unknown. So what this is saying is God's people will be weak. They will be unhealthy. 
They will not be prosperous. And do we not see the same thing in the church today? The church, we are weak. We are unhealthy. See, instead of being salt and life preserving and illuminating this fallen world, we have become indistinguishable from the fallen world. And in our grasp for worldly power and acceptance, we have forfeited divine power and divine acceptance. And as a whole, the Christian church has become weak and ineffective. Isaiah then gives a further illustration of of gleaning grain and and gleaning olives. And these illustrations show the, the devastation as God's people face this judgment. And these illustrations are really, again, simultaneously terrifying, but they're also encouraging. And what, we, what they show is really the full extent of the, of the judgment. It shows the extent of the corruption of God's people. And it's vast. And it rep, it's, it's represented by the, the harvested grain and the harvested olives. But there's also hope here. There's also encouragement. The hope is seen in the remnant. It is seen in the gleaning. It is seen in the fact that this judgment and this destruction, it is not total. See, it's not like the the judgment on the pagan city Damascus. Damascus, at least for this time, was completely destroyed. It was no longer a city. The pagans were completely destroyed. But this is not the case for God's people. There is a remnant. There is a faithful remnant. Now, this remnant is weak. They are few. They, too, are suffering judgment and chastisement. They, too, have, have compromised to some extent. But they are still faithful. They still believe. And it's not due to themselves. It's because God had preserved them. If God didn't preserve them, they'd be just like Damascus. They'd just be like the pagans. In verse 7 and 8, this is where we see hope. This is where we see amazing hope. These two verses, these are the highlight. This is the high point of the entire chapter. In these two verses, we see God's grace. We see his goodness toward his people. And we see God's purpose here in his discipline, his fatherly discipline on his people. Take a look at verses 7 and 8. In that day, man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to altars, not look to the work of his hands. He will not look to what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. Those were were, uh, pagan ways of worshiping. And here what we see, God accomplishes his purpose. See, the pain and the misery of the judgment, they were not in vain. God's people were not fully, they were not finally turned over to destruction. The judgment actually brought about its desired effect. And that desired effect is that God's people would turn back to him. They would turn to their maker. They would turn their eyes to him, the Holy One of Israel, the true and living God. And this judgment, this this pain, it awakens them from their stupor. It gets their attention and they see the futility, the futility of, of taking matters into their own hands. They see the utter foolishness of attempting to help God, help God by adopting the ways of those who do not know God and looking to the ways of this fallen world. And they will return to God and, and they realize that the true God cannot be worshipped in the ways of the pagan gods. They cannot be worshipped by the ashrams and the, and the altars of incense. He cannot be helped and he is not honored by these unholy alliances. So what does this mean to us? Well, I think there are two applications for the church today. And the first application is simple. We cannot help God. We cannot help God. We cannot be smarter. We are not smarter than God. See, God has ordained his means of building his kingdom. It is his word. His word preached and the gospel proclaimed. 
And we must understand, we must accept that the gospel is foolishness to this fallen world. And more than that, this gospel is hated by the fallen world. Not only is it foolish, it is hated by the fallen world. It is actually the most offensive thing that a fallen person can hear. And the reason it's so offensive is because the gospel tells a fallen person, a fallen person who really, in the end, worships himself, he trusts his own works, he trusts his own ability, he trusts his own goodness to save him, and the gospel says it won't work. It will not work. And the gospel is so offensive because it says that saving yourself is impossible. It's offensive because it says that there is nothing, there is absolutely nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And even worse, it says that each one of us, each one of us is currently under judgment. Each one of us is currently on the path to hell. The gospel is so hated because it says that there is only one hope. There is only one hope for this terrible condition, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. And every single person, no matter where you live, you must receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone, or you are headed to hell. This is offensive. People hate hearing this. There is one hope. It is faith alone. Supernatural and saving faith that comes from Jesus Christ. And this message is hated, and those who proclaim this message are hated. Those who proclaim this message are marginalized. And because of this, because we will be hated, because we will be marginalized, because we will not, as Jack says, get a seat at the cool kids' table, because of this, there is an overwhelming temptation to compromise. Compromise on this message. There's an overwhelming temptation to soften the message, to make it just a little more palatable, to make it sound, uh, sound similar to our natural inclination to works righteousness, salvation by what we do. We see this, so many churches falling and adding works righteousness into it. And as Christians, as a church, we must resist this temptation. We must resist this temptation with every fiber of our being. Because if we succumb to this temptation will be no different than Israel, no different than Judah. We would have made a, an unholy alliance with the world. And we must be very suspect, very suspect of attempting to employ worldly methods for the furtherance of the gospel in any way. This is our first application. The second application is we must understand that God often uses pain, often uses trial, often uses judgment to bring his elect to himself. And he uses these difficulties really to get us to despair of ourselves, to see reality, to know that it is impossible, it is futile for us to trust in ourselves, and to know that our only hope, only hope when we, when we are flat on our backs and when we look up, then we will look to our maker, to know that's what the, the purpose is to get us to the point where we despise and despair of ourselves and we look up, we look to our maker. And then we are saved. And we must resist the temptation to soften the pain. We must, you know, we do the unbeliever no good if we take away the pain. Pain that God is using to get their attention. See, doing this will only reinforce their rebellion against God. There, there are many times people ask me to pray for unbelievers who are, who are in, you know, having serious health conditions or, or uh, um, just difficulty. And, and, and I pray in a way that they probably wouldn't like. I pray that the Lord will use enough pain to get their attention. I don't pray that the Lord takes the pain away. I actually say that he will enforce the pain to get their attention. Because what, if they don't, it will just reinforce this delusion that they are sovereign. 
Now, I only want enough paint to get their, their tents, not an ounce more and not an ounce less. God is not a sadist. God is not going to, once he accomplishes purpose, he's going to take the pain away. But we must trust God. We must trust his means. We must trust his sovereignty. And we must never attempt to help him out, especially help him by these unholy alliances with the world. And this will be a temptation for all of us. Let's pray. Lord, we admit that we so often seek to help you out. We seek to take things into our own hands because we get frustrated. We think you are not acting. We think we know better. We think that if we do something different, something that compromises, something against your word, that that will be successful. And it may be temporary, give an outward sign, just like Saul outwardly appeared to be the perfect king. But ultimately, it will do no good to your kingdom. So, Father, I pray as your people that you keep us trusting in your means of grace, trusting in them, and trusting in your timing, and faithful to you, and protect us from those temptations to take things into our own hands. Father, we pray that you are pleased and you are glorified in all we do and say. We pray in Jesus' name.